Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, the Supreme Court and gay marriage. So, Richard, we've had these big decisions coming down from the Supreme Court in the final days of this term. Only a few days ago, you and I recorded a special show in reaction to the court's ruling on Obamacare. That was the biggest story in the world that day. And within 24 hours, it was on the back burner because of this subsequent ruling, uh, five to four, with Justice Kennedy joining the liberal justices, that under the 14th Amendment, states are compelled to allow homosexual couples to wed. Let's just start there. Does that square with your reading of the 14th Amendment? Well, I think it's very clear that the equal protection analysis that uh, Justice Kennedy adopts is not bear any relationship to the way in which I have always understood the amendment. The first point to note is he is not playing the living constitutionalism game under these circumstances because he wants to avoid the buzzsaw of criticism that will come from the conservative bloc if they say, well, whatever the Constitution made in 1868 or in 1950, it now means something else and I'm the exclusive, shall we say, guardian of its modern interpretation. Instead, he sounds like um, William Blackstone and he says, the Constitution requires full stop. There's no intermediation of his will into the operation. If you treat it in that particular way, it's important to understand how the 14th Amendment, of which the Equal Protection Clause is a part, was put together. This was perhaps the major achievement of constitutionalism in the post-war era, that is the post-Civil War era, and it has basically four key parts to it in its first section. And the first of these is essentially uh, overruling Dred Scott and making it clear that every person who was born in the United States or naturalized is a citizen of the United States. Dred Scott, of course, had held that emancipation of a slave does not create citizenship, which was technically a correct decision, but utterly insupportable as terms of its political uh, dimension. All right, So you get that. Then there has to be a payoff for this. And what's the payoff of this? Well, it's that you get all the privileges and immunities of the citizens of the United States. Or put negatively, no state shall make or enforce any law that denies to any citizen um, of the United States the privileges and immunities, right? And so you have to figure out what those are. And they have to do largely with things like economic liberties on the one hand and the ability to acquire property and to vote on the other. So it's a civil capacity statute. Then comes equal protection and due process. These don't go only to citizens. They go to all persons, including aliens, and they had a much more limited office, and they were designed to make sure that with respect to property, you were not subject to confiscation, and with respect to liberty, you were not subject to arbitrary arrest. That's what the due process clause is about. And the equal protection clause, stress on the word protection, is intended to make sure that there's a uniform enforcement of the criminal law so that blacks aren't subject to heavier prosecution than whites or whites that commit crime against blacks don't get a free pass. These are enormous reforms if you think about things in terms of the earlier status of blacks in the United States and that's what was meant. Well, what happens, of course, is if you do all of that, then the provision of any public benefit from the state, like, for example, a marriage license of 40 acres and a mule, is simply out from underneath the Equal Protection Clause. Uh, this particular reading has long been regarded as very untenable historically because it makes Brown v. Board deeply problematic. And so once you get to Brown v. Board, 
equal protection no longer has to deal with uh, just the questions of criminal enforcement. It has to do with the distribution of benefits that run from the public schools. And it's from that that our good friend um, Kennedy takes off. Now, is there a difference? Well, the answer is, what are the exceptions to any of the enumerated rights that individuals have under the Constitution? And the traditional view on this subject, which comes back only imperfectly in the situation that we have in the case um, Obergfeld, um, is that the protection of liberties of all sorts, kinds, and description is subject to a police power limitation relating to health, safety, the general welfare, and morals. And if you go in the immediate post-war period, the morals head of the police power was really an extremely broad and highly assertive situation. And it was used in a case called Reynolds against the United States uh, to essentially punish polygamy, a form of marriage with procreative purposes, and to confiscate the property of the Mormons who had it. And what the great ingenious nature of the Kennedy decision is he finesses the polygamy issue, which is raised in the dissent a little bit by uh, Chief Justice Roberts, and uh, eviscerates the morals head of the police power, and now treats this as a fundamental liberty, um, which is consistent with a number of other earlier cases, most notably loving against Virginia. So, I mean, it's a pretty long and complicated transformation on this stuff, but he makes it appear and I think consciously makes it appear uh, that discrimination on the grounds of sexual orientation now sort of looks like discrimination on grounds of race, which will have many complicated collateral consequences if that equivalence is upheld um, throughout the rest of American constitutional and statutory law. One of the criticisms that's always lodged about Roe v. Wade, we've talked about this before, is that by arresting the policy process in the states, it may have resolved the law, but if anything, it made the underlying policy argument less resolved. It sort of hardened the battle lines. And Richard, some people are saying that this ruling will have exactly the same effect. And on the other hand, some people say, you know what? Public opinion was moving so rapidly in favor of gay marriage anyway. What does it really matter? This was going to happen one way or the other. Where do you come down on that argument? Well, I mean I certainly believe that in terms of the question of gay marriage, if that's the only thing on the table, public opinion has moved. The last survey that I saw indicated something like a 19-point shift in favor of the arrangement in the last five or six years. And gay marriage is supported by people, say, between 18 and 30 by around 80 percent of the population. And if you start looking at the state courts and the federal circuit courts with the notable exception of Jeff Sutton, they've all found constitutional rights or have passed this. So there's no question to my mind that gay marriage would be virtually universal in the United States, say by the year 2020 at the latest and probably a little bit earlier. Uh, But there's an important element about legitimation that comes in. Um, The Scalia dissent was very pointed to say you've got five liberal justices, all of whom have went to Harvard and Yale law schools, uh, making policy for the rest of the nation. And he called it a kind of elitism. When you get it through legislative approval throughout the country, even in southern or western states that might be hostile to it, I do think you get a higher level of legitimacy than you do with a 5-4 vote. And remember, this is very different from Brown v. Board because under those circumstances, Chief Justice Warren and everybody else kind of believe that if you're going to take on segregation, an infinitely greater evil, you better do it unanimously or it turns out that you're going to lose the legitimacy that you're going to need when there's massive resistance. 
Now, will there be massive resistance? It all depends on how you frame the issue. If you frame it as uh, they're going to, people will say, let's undo gay marriage. There'll be some people who want a constitutional amendment for that, just as there were people who wanted a constitutional amendment to legitimate the anti-miscegenation laws. But that's not going anywhere, nor should it go anywhere. The real question is proposals that are beginning to bubble up. Um, what can we do to churches that don't perform gay weddings? Can we announce that these churches will be denied the uh, tax-exempt status that go to other religious institutions? This was done with respect to blacks under the decision in the Bob Jones University case, and the court upheld it on the grounds that overcoming this kind of discrimination was a fundamental interest that the United States should prefer, and you could find that it's fundamental in this case. So now all of a sudden, Orthodox Jewish organizations and Catholic organizations could be stripped. Now, I don't think this is very likely politically, but once you create the equation in terms of the popular sentiment on this issue, it's a legitimate legislative matter that can be put on the table. Uh, the answer is going to be where you have the explicit protection of the free exercise clause, which you don't have substantively with respect to gay marriage, but that was also true in Bob Jones, and they took the following proposition, which is you may be able to practice your religion, but you can't demand a tax subsidy. And it's interesting, Justice Kennedy did not go out of his way, as I think he should have, to scotch that. He said, in effect, you always have the right to teach your religious beliefs. The question is, do you have the right to practice them? And the argument is made, well, you don't have to have the rest of the country subsidize you, to which the answer comes back, but you're now requiring people who believe in the Christian theology or the Orthodox Jewish philosophy or any other philosophy, they have to subsidize every other organization which has the contrary belief. So I've always thought that Bob Jones was terribly wrong in terms of its intellectual framework, and I think the error is going to be much more painful if this movement gets up ahead of steam. You talk about fractious issues, trying to deny tax-exempt status to half the churches in the United States um, is going to be really devastating. And of course, remember, it's not just the federal government. You've got state real estate taxes on the line as well and a whole variety of other things that are done through local bodies. Richard, one of the quotes from Chief Justice Roberts' dissent that has gotten the most traction is this one. He wrote, this court is not a legislature. Whether same-sex marriage is a good idea should be of no concern to us. Under the Constitution, judges have power to say what the law is, not what it should be. The people who ratified the Constitution authorized courts to exercise neither force nor will but merely judgment. That's the end of the quote. A lot of people on the right in particular, even though they may agree with that sentiment, are having a hard time swallowing that from the Chief Justice given that After. they think deciding what the law should be was precisely what he did the day before in the Obamacare case. So given that fact, is there, is there any way to square that circle? Do we know what the Chief Justice's judicial philosophy is? Um, we know his judicial philosophy is as follows. He does not believe in strong theoretical conceptions that unify the approach to different areas of law. Um, he is a litigator. He is not an academic. He is not a thinker. One of the passages that got less attention from him in this case was he quotes the Holmes line that the Constitution doesn't enact Mr. Herbert Spence's social statics and he says it also doesn't enact Mr. John Stewart's mills on liberty. So he doesn't want to go in that particular direction with the harm principle and so therefore he's not going to be general. Now what distinguishes this case from the Obamacare case? I think in effect it is the mischief principle. Um, as he looks at this particular situation, 
you decide, in effect, that you're not going to give constitutional status to gay marriage. Things are just as they were the day before. And you could have legislative initiatives and state initiatives to do it. You start looking at the Obamacare situation and you decide that established by a state exchange means just that. Now there's 6 million people who've lost their coverage. There are thousands of firms who are going to find themselves out on the street. There is no plan B that anybody inside Congress has with respect to this. And Justice um, Roberts, I think, as an institutionalist, does not appreciate the potential melee that will come down if you go the other way. You might recall when I wrote about this in, in Ricochet, I had the following odd response to it, which was that I regretted the fact that I thought the case against the administration's position was as strong as it was. And the reason I did that is because you could see this from a mile away. And I think in the end, that kind of necessity kind of expression is what dominated him under those circumstances. And that's consistent with the view of the Chief Justice as a kind of an intellectual incrementalist, no broad principles, but some real sensitivity to the way these things will take place. And I have no doubt uh, that it will be a long number of Sundays before he will be prepared to do the same kind of ingenuity that he did here. And in fact, there's one interesting thing about this, which is if this were just a matter of administrative or judicial discretion to administrative interpretation, Republican president in 2017 can flip this rule over. He did not do that. He talked about deference and he talked about the Chevron case, which announces it. And then he says he's doing this as a matter of statutory interpretation, which means that since it's done by the court, it cannot be flipped over again by administration. That is, he was so concerned about the continuity issue, he didn't give the administration a weak form of victory. That is, you can do it now and we can change it two years later. He gave them the strong form of victory. And there were a bunch of questions during the oral argument about whether or not this thing could be changed if it were done by Chevron, but really gave a kind of a waffly answer on this, I think that Roberts knew that it was waffly, so he introduced yet another wrinkle in the law of administrative discretion. Sometimes Chevron is a matter of deference to administrative agencies. Sometimes it turns out to be an interpretive rule. This is likely to have a lot of mischief and confusion in cases going forward. Um, indeed, it certainly is one of the issues that cropped up in the environmental case that came down just yesterday. So final question. Unsurprisingly, most of the Republican presidential candidates were sharply critical of this ruling on the gay marriage case. Rand Paul was too, but he took a slightly different approach. He wrote a piece for Time magazine that sort of indirectly suggested – he didn't go all in – but hinted that maybe government shouldn't be involved in the marriage business at all. That's not an unfamiliar argument from libertarians and, and some conservatives. Is it a practical one? Well, it turns out for hundreds and thousands of years, it was quite practical. Marriage was always thought to be a natural law relationship. Generally, it was one man and one woman, but it certainly was the case that polygamous relationships were very common during the early years, and they're featured very prominently, uh, particularly in the new, in the Old Testament and in Muslim religion and all the rest of that stuff. So you can see it as being that way. And under those views, you would want to say if the state gets involved, it's just as a registration agency checking for minimal 
minimal kinds of competences like um, infectious diseases or insanity or something of the sort. So one understands where Paul is coming from. The difficulty is if you don't have some kind of state recognition and solemnization of the marriage, it's going to be very difficult to figure out what you do with all of the billions of rules that we have in state, federal, and local law that turn on the definition of marriage. If you don't know whether two people are married, do they file joint tax returns? What kinds of credits do they get one to another? How do you deal with the real estate taxes? What do you deal with title and stuff like this um, with respect to ordinary conveyances? So essentially what happens is we have a much more formal state today, heavy registration, lots of written documents of one kind or another, and the oral tradition doesn't do it. So at the very least, you're going to have to have a place where people can report their marriages, and then somebody's going to say, are you entitled to record it? So I don't think it's going to be all that practical. I actually understand what he's trying to do and think there's some good sense to it. If, in fact, you say, look, the state does not get to determine the substantive terms of marriage. You get rid of the same-sex problem. It's open to any two people or, if you believe in polygamy, to any two or ten people under these cases. And you're trying to reduce the level of conflict. Um, it's not going to solve this particular problem in many cases because, as I said to you, I think the next generation of fights is not going to be over the status of gay marriage. I mean, everybody's going to respect the recordation stuff, and the implementation will not be particularly difficult. It's going to be on the second generation of questions that I mentioned before, is can you exclude from various privileges of social life those organizations that are not prepared to perform same-sex marriages or to serve same-sex couples? And we've seen that there's a huge buzz and controversy over that one, and that's a problem which licensing won't solve, and my fear is if it continues to be aggressively pushed by the advocates for same-sex marriage, it can result in a real cultural struggle of unparalleled ugliness. All right. I'm sure we'll be talking about that in the future. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. And remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at hoover.org, and you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Senek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.